I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. You know, I'm looking at the screen and it's very clear that one of us is at work ready to start the day and the other of us may have gotten out of bed not too long ago. I'm not going to say which one of us it is, though. Um, well, you need to say that you're the one who's at home because it would be shade. <laughs> it would be shade if you weren't talking about yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually in my office because I we're having our um, virtual visiting mini clerkship right now for uh, for underrepresented minority students nice. coming to peep the internal medicine program here at Emory. And I start the Mondays off with what we call morning coffee mm-hmm. and. I get to basically look to the faces of all of these melanated future physicians and we just kind of chop it up. So today we were sort of talking about preparing for interviews and Mm. it was really cool. They got to ask me some really good questions about the kinds of questions that make me really glad I'm a black woman Mm. uh, on the opposite side of the screen talking to them. Somebody asked me about like, how could they wear their hair and one young woman said, you know, I really feel good when I wear a colorful hijab. Do you think I should wear something muted like black or beige? I said, no, sis, <laughs> I am here for your purple hijab. If that is what gives you, you know, all the black girl magic, bring it. I love it. Just watching her beam. It just made me so happy. Oh man. I love that. I remember <laughs> my first year on faculty when I finally decided to go natural, like fully natural and how affirming it was to be able to conduct interviews and like be front facing in that way to let them know, like, you know, you, you have a place here, no matter what your hair looks like. That's right. That's right. I said, what, where you're here, the way that you feel great. I love it. Well, tell me, sis, did you do anything cool or learn anything new this week that you want to share with the crowds? Yes, I did. I learned that roly poly bugs are, (laughs) are crustaceans. Did you know that? I'm sorry. I did not know that. I don't know a lot of things about bugs, to be honest. I don't either. I heard it on Twitter. Then I, of course, like went down a rabbit hole Googling it. And it's true. <laughs> but the other thing goes back to the thing you said about your phone. Mm. And that was about how you wish you could put your phone down some more. Yeah. So I just read this book called Dopamine Nation. Have you read that? I have not. When I say it is stepping all up on the toes. I mean, my toes are, I could barely walk. Because... <laughs> So it's by this psychiatrist. It is about how we get all of these things that sort of cause us dopamine triggers Mm. and how, and how it's connected to addiction and how we all have our like things, right. Our vices. Right. And, and really when something swings over into becoming an addiction is when it starts to lead to like role failure and you not being able to do the things that you need to do, but how, as long um, as you have ways to stimulate pleasure, eventually you will keep doing that to the point that it can lead to pain. And the pain is through like either role failure 
or through some other means. So this fine line between pleasure and pain. So, and she tells a lot of stories in her role as a, you know, doing psychotherapy on her patients who are experiencing um, addictions, but, but, but even just kind of relates it to things like smartphones and playing video games Mm -hmm. and all the things we do that just give us a little jolt, like watching, you know, Netflix and how the show ends. And then the little, little wave thing comes over to give you another episode <laughs> and how even the anticipation piece is a part of the dopamine rush that you get. But I, the thing I mostly took away from the book was one that she has this whole acronym for dopamine, which I don't think she made up, but she kind of walks through. I, I, I'm not about to recite the whole thing. So don't <laughs> yes, worry. Like that's a lot of don't letters. worry. I know yeah, <laughs> I don't want to steal all the thunder of it, but one big piece of the acronym, the A is for abstinence and a, a period of abstinence. What it does is it allows you to sort of reset mm-hmm. what your needs are. It also allows you to gain insight and, and to just start to kind of find a way to develop a healthier relationship with something that you do. So a period of abstinence from say your smartphone is something that you, that people can do. I just found the whole thing very interesting because I know I'd be getting my dopamine hits um, <laughs> on the reg. Um, and, 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 and as I think about the ways that I judge other people, right. So mm-hmm. For some people, it is food. And if you wrinkle in your nose up at somebody who, you know, eats yep. the wrong stuff, but yet, meanwhile, you binge in 500 seasons of some anime show on Netflix, <laughs> you are really no better. Um, and, and quietly, if you go crazy running on a treadmill or cycling on a Peloton, you know, th- those are dopamine rushes too. And if you're doing it while you have a pulled hamstring and mm-hmm. you can't barely walk, guess what? So basically we're all horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That sounds like exactly the book I would like to read. Yeah, it was, it was really good. No, that's real. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like I mentioned before, I'm going on vacation next week and I would really like to lose my phone. Like it's become such an impulsive crutch, especially when I'm feeling pressure to do things that I don't feel like doing. Um, I will share something very, very brief that I learned that is like medium exciting for me as a primary care doctor and also recognizing how much I depend on the LVNs that work on my team. So these are our nurses who do um, screening for uh, vaccines that are due, blood pressure check, just really like helping like get the visit started and tell me if there's anything specific that, you know, they're concerned about that I need to make sure that I address and help me with my agenda setting. And girl, I did not know that PCV-13 or the, the Prevnar pneumonia vaccine was no longer recommended as a scheduled vaccine for folks over 65. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, <laughs> Professor Manny did not either. All right, cool. Y'all, was... y'all, please don't judge us. We do not know everything. We don't. It's a lot of stuff we don't know. Yeah, but I was cool with that because I was like, man, this is this is great because clearly like I can only keep up with so many things in my head. And the the LVNs were already on top of it. They had stopped screening for that vaccine unless folks were immunocompromised or had some other indication. 
But essentially, you know, the CDC stopped that recommendation because there's enough immunity in the community now that that variant of pneumonia is no longer really a problem. Girl, you better drop them pearls. Amen. Shout out all the licensed vocational nurses who do such incredible work and allow me to do my job better. A word. Interprofessional teams for the win. Well, hello, Mahalia in your twist, girl. You look adorable. She says hello. Oh, thank you, girl. Jewel says hello back. And we would like to know if you have a story for us today and what is the what? We do have a story for for everybody today. And I also want to shout out that, you know, this is going to be episode 15. We have been rocking with us since beginning of the summer. So we're going to take a little break after this, but I thought that we could end this season with success. Ooh, success. Mm-hmm. All right, let me get comfortable. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, not just in primary care, but in a lot of aspects of, of medicine, success can be hard to define, or we kind of box it in into specific metrics, thinking about nailing a clutch diagnosis or, you know, treating something and seeing someone get, get better immediately or in the hospital throughput gets celebrated a lot. I remember I would get pats on the back for how many patients I discharge or administrators like paging me in the morning, like a so-and-so going home today and was not really as celebrated. Some of the other wins that I had to recognize were successes too. You feel me? I'm feeling you. I'm with you. So I remember a very, very meaningful patient relationship that I had in primary care Starting, I think either, yeah, I think around my second year or maybe early third year of residency, this individual had in-stage liver disease. Okay. They had advanced cirrhosis. And the reason for this was years of, of alcohol use disorder. By the time this person had come to my primary care visit for the first time, the disease was fairly decompensated. And by that, I mean, they were accumulating a lot of fluid in their abdomen and to the point where they were needing it drained via paracentesis every two weeks. Mm. You know, it was kind of a tricky balance of, you know, you're managing symptoms, but also trying to think about like kind of long-term solutions. Because once you get to that point in, in liver disease, it's not really reversible. The only treatment or cure for that matter is actually a transplant. And, you know, our transplant system is not perfect by any means. In fact, you know, there's a lot of stigma and, and hoops to jump through to just to get on the list. You know, this individual, you could tell early on when they walked into the room, I could see like back in the day, like, you know, they were, they were the life of the party, you know, just very affable, even, even while being sick, it's still like crack jokes and, and make mm-hmm. people laugh, always like smiling and Great, but also a little vexing in, in some ways because, you know, I'd find myself kind of struggling with the fact of like, I don't know how serious you're, you're taking this. Like, this is pretty bad. And um, this person, you know, English was not their first language. Mm-hmm. They had a partner who always came with them and then the partner spoke English. And so the partner was usually in the room and myself always being in a rush. I didn't always use an interpreter. Sometimes I would rely on the, on the partner to help, which was not best practice, but reality. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of would go through these cycles of trying to achieve stability, but also trying to get the patient eligible to, to get on the transplant list. And the patient would occasionally still drink. 
particularly after after the holiday season, they had relapsed quite quite a bit. They would always kind of downplay it a little bit. It was like, oh, you know, it was Christmas. I was with friends and, you know, it's like, come on, you know, you gotta, you gotta go to AA. Like this is what's required for, for the transplant. And, you know, there was just like this disconnect. And and I I found myself getting more and more frustrated and desperate too, because I didn't know like what, I didn't know how to help this person. Mm -hmm. And so one day I, it was in the middle of, of, of clinic and I just decided, I know I have folks waiting, but we need to, we need to do this. I'm going to take as much time as I need. And I actually had the partner wait outside the room and I got an interpreter and just had like a very frank discussion with this patient whom I had known for the better part of a year now. I just asked like, what do you, what do you really want? Do you understand like what's going on here? And we kind of talked through the the disease more. And I was just asking like, what do you want? And they said, I want to go home. Mm. I want to go home. And their home was not in this country. Mm. And so we had a, a deep discussion and actually in the end, they gave me a hug. Mm. And we hadn't reached like an, a, like a solid conclusion, but I felt like it was the first time we were really like seeing each other. Mm. It was like an inflection point in, in our relationship and the trajectory of their care. You know, over time with all the, the fluid shifts um, and, and the paracentesis, the, the patient's kidneys had started to fail. And, you know, every time they would get labs, the numbers would be off the charts and it was automatic. Okay. You got to come in for admission. And it was kind of these, these cycles of admissions. And as a, as a trainee, when you're not present and, you know, those triage decisions are being made by folks who are covering for you mm-hmm. often outside of the context of, you know, the, 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 the bigger picture and then the inpatient teams do their thing and then they send them out. And it's kind of, you know, sometimes these, these cycles in medicine that occur. Right. I remember, you know, when I finally like finished residency and was early in my chief year, this individual was about to be admitted again. And I had had a chance or at least more time to go talk to a couple different folks and like liver and, and kidney, some, some attendings that I really trusted to tell me the truth. And the truth was the likelihood of this individual getting a transplant was slim to none. And nobody had really said that yet. Mm, mm. And so this hospitalization, I actually myself called the, called the primary team, called the, the consulting liver team, called the consulting kidney team and said, can we sit down with this patient and kind of go through the reality of the situation and, and give some options? Because I think, I think I understand what they want, but they may not be able to articulate it well. And so we had this big meeting in the hospital. And it's mm. the first time I, I, I saw them really kind of sitting with the gravity of, you know, this, this life, this end of life decision. And the conclusion of that meeting was that we were going to transition the goals of our efforts to get this individual home. Mm. And so including um, a Plurex catheter, so a drain that remained in to allow that fluid to come off, even though we knew that that would make the kidney situation worse, Mm -hmm. but to buy enough time to get the patient stable enough to get on a plane. Mm. And what was hard was that this individual was also in a, in a same sex relationship Their mm. their partner had been so devoted, like mm. every time coming in, taking notes, writing down medications, you know, mm. doing all of the things and the maneuvering to keep this patient alive really. Mm. 
but the patient's family was not accepting of their relationship. Mm. And so the partner was not able to go home with them. Mm. Mm. And so we, we did what we had to do. I like wrote letters for the airlines to make sure that they were taken care of. And they got on a plane and went home. I ended up meeting up the, the partner who was still stateside for, for coffee after we had successfully gotten the, the patient back to their family. And um, the partner pulled up their, their phone with the WhatsApp and we, we called the patients in, in their home country and got to say hello. And for me, it was goodbye as well. And what I, what I heard from the partner later on is that they passed not too long after that and they were happy. You know, I didn't present this case at morning report. It is not, you know, the, the case report that's published in, in JAMA, the hospital administrators weren't high-fiving me for, you know, any, any of this. It, it can be a little lonely sometimes in, in primary care when you sometimes can feel like it's on you. Yeah. And it's not always easy to give people the care that they need. In fact, in a situation like this, it could have been easily the case where, you know, once they're kind of in the hospital cycle, you know, you stand in the background and, and see what happens once they're too sick to be treated in primary care. Mm. But I was able to do that for yeah. this person. And I, I hold on to that as the measure of supreme success. Mm. I didn't, I didn't get them to stop drinking. You know, I don't make any clutch diagnoses, but to be able to step into someone's life and, and help them transition in a way that may have seemed impossible before, that is success all day, every day. And I'm hoping to create space where we can share more of that. Mm. I love that. Huh. But I'm not going to cry because... <laughs> Because I've been the one crying on all of these episodes. Um, that's beautiful. A few things that just jump out to me is that, you know, what you did was you basically stuck your foot in the way of the inertia ball. Because mm-hmm. clinical inertia, you know, is a powerful thing. People get tossed back and forth like hot potatoes. We just kind of do the thing and move the person out of our space only to go to another space. Mm-hmm. And it is often the primary care doctor who is the one who steps in the way. What I particularly love is that you leveraged the relationship you had with the patient and you know the organizational memory you had from just seeing this patient and their partner repeatedly to, to contact the team and stand in as an advocate. And, um, you know, I, I do a lot of inpatient medicine and there's nothing like the word of the, the primary care doctor. And that does not happen enough. You know, mm-hmm. primary care doctors are busy. There's a lot of reasons why this doesn't happen, but just imagining particularly somebody who has immigrated to this country and does not even speak English mm-hmm. to have somebody advocate for them on, on, on that level is, is really dope and inspiring. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've said this before, like I have not done this for everybody. There are patients I know that have kind of fallen through the cracks and, and gone through this cycle. And, you know, I didn't have the, the relationship or the stamina or what have you to, to step in in ways that I wish that I could have. Mm. But every once in a while, that opportunity comes along yeah and, and you can do it and you can really make a difference. 
You know what else is dope that I'm thinking about too is the the interpreters. So we were just talking about interprofessional teams and how important they are to us being able to do what we do, right? Mm-hmm. And um, a few um, several years ago, I was with an interpreter at Grady, and I was doing the thing that people do when they're with interpreters. Tell him blank. Tell him, <laughs> tell her blank. Tell him. And this this amazing interpreter at Grady, she looked at me and she said. You know, Dr. Manning, I I see you interact with people in this hospital all the time. Give your patients who do not speak English what you give everybody. Wow. And I I will interpret. Wow. So she she walked me through what she wanted me to do. She said, I want you I want you to talk to the patient and just pause. And I want you to do everything as if the patient spoke English. But that interpreter taught me about how much we can even tighten those relationships absolutely ultimately help us advocate for people so I thought it was an important piece of the story that you said mm-hmm. I called an interpreter in because mm-hmm. they are going to say exactly what you say mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's where the hug came from because y'all kind of broke through that you know that sort of that barrier yeah because I was I was doing the same thing and you, you just kind of like do it by default sometimes when when someone's in the room who speaks English, you find mm-hmm. yourself kind of turning towards them. And before you know, you're not even talking to the patient anymore. I just had an aha moment that I have always thought of calling the interpreter as a means to humanize the patient. Mm. But your story has just affirmed that it humanizes us too. Ooh which is probably why your patient hugged you. Mm. That's a word, right? Yeah. Wow. I'm sad that um, your patient's partner could not be there though. Yeah. That's yeah. bittersweet. It is bittersweet. And they were so stoic throughout it all. It kept um, kind of communication every, every so often just to check in and what, what, the, the partner continuously expressed to me was just so much gratitude. Mm. You know, they had basically given the, their entire selves to the service of, of caring for this individual. Mm. And um, I know it's, it's hard after that to, you know, re redefine and purpose your life after you've been a caregiver for, for so long, but you know, it seemed like they were doing okay. You know what? That was, a strong person. Absolutely. Were, were they, were they from the same place? No. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm-mm-mm. I think they, they shared a, the same ethnicity, but one was born here and the other had immigrated from another country. Mm-hmm-hmm. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> love. Yeah. Yep. Well, I love that you shared that story. Of course. See, this is the type of dopamine surge I need in my life. I'm glad that you told us about something where it was a success because I was like, you know, looking back through our episodes thinking, gosh, we sure do show our clay feet a lot. We're like, oh, (laughs) let me tell you about this story where I sucked. Let me tell you about this story where I went off on somebody. Let me tell you about this story where this girl didn't like me and said some people don't like pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you about when my patient fired me. (laughs) I know. I was looking back at the themes too. I was like, oh shoot, let me, let me bring this back up a little bit before we sign off. Hey, no but cap. taking it back to that book, um, Dopamine Nation, one of the things um, that she does talk about in the book is how 
honesty is really one of the things that we need on, on our path to being our most full and well selves. And so some of that is really like, you know, calling out your shortcomings. Mm-hmm. So there we go. We just do it in front of a few thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing to hide. But you know what? Sometimes we get it right, sis. Amen. It is always a pleasure. Yes. Likewise, you know, this has been incredible. I look forward to picking back up the next season, but I'm also looking forward to some rest and restoration for both of us. Yes, ma'am. All right, sis. Love you. Love you more. Bye. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and the Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla. Holla.